Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Hey, just before we get started, this is a conspiracy, paranormal, and true crime podcast. The nature of this podcast is gory, unsettling, and definitely vulgar. And we curse a lot. Like a lot, a lot. But we're working on it, so just bear with us. Uh, so be advised that it's the holiday season. <laughs> and we're just two idiots with a mic. Okay, just enjoy the episode. And cookies and milk. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes. Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. And no, you don't have it sped up. We're just kind of losing it. We're actually on um, something. We're on a different level today. We're not sure what it is. Maybe it's my sl- new slippers that I got. <laughs> Maybe it's the new slippers. <laughs> that they're making me act up. They're act- making me talk like a million miles an hour. Acting up. So if you got us on 2X, put us down to 0.5. Yeah, <laughs> slow down, babe. Slow down. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. Happy holidays. Sorry for that um, warning. Not typical. We I don't know where we went with that or where it was, but I feel thank like people God. skip 30 seconds in. Right. And ha- you're right. Happy holidays, everybody. We are officially, we are officially, officially in the holiday season. Season salad. Season. Like, I think <laughs> I, I'm pretty positive that Hanukkah started yesterday. We were recording this on Tuesday before so this episode Hanukkah. comes out. So happy Hanukkah, everybody. Happy holidays. And Merry happy Christmas. holidays. Feliz Navidad. Yeah, oh my God. We're, we're popping off, okay? Because it is finally the holiday season. And we love the holiday season. I love the holiday this season. This year, I never got to a Christmas tree. And there is not a Christmas tree up in my residence. But you did have something that I saw when we were on FaceTime. A couple trees. A couple little like mini trees. That counts. That counts. That does count. That's all I got. Yeah. And that that's just enough to like put you in the mood of it. Yeah. I'll but don't worry, you'll have home. one next year. I will. Me and Logan gotten like a straight up battle about how we're decorating next year. He wants a multicolored tree. He has a multicolored he tree in it. this house. They're not my favorite. To be honest, they're Mine just not my favorite. When we were kids, ours was multicolored, and we had all of our little like stupid ornaments. Right, on it. and it's just Logan, not really peaceful. If anything, right. it gives me anxiety. It gives me a little bit of anxiety, and like I just don't want that in my living room. And that's why I don't mind our multicolored one to be bare multicolored and in the dining room. But he wants to do multicolored on he the wants, one in the front door. He wants the LED that can hook up to his phone, and he can make it do a show. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> look. No, because I have a very complete vision of what I want. Now, he will not get me another Christmas tree until we move from this house. Technically, we might not be in this house next Christmas. And yes. I can't live like that. No, um, you'll be here. Yeah, Let's I be real. at least need one more. I just wasn't prepared for this one to be the last. Yeah. So it's just been too chaotic. So yeah. I would prefer to have one more. 
unless for some crazy reason we found an amazing home that we couldn't pass up on i think is the only reason that we would not be in this house and by the way everything's looking i don't think that's gonna happen (laughs) so not anytime soon not anytime soon you guys make it impossible to be in your 20s the way that you guys put it in movies it's just fake it's fake okay it's fake i watched how to lose a guy in 10 days and i I was just like That is not what it is at all. They just no. lie. It, they just literally lie. And like, I was just like, I was like, is it really like this for anybody out there? I guess it not is. Not like in the way of like love, but like in the way she was just living her life. The like way she you was just, just live. young. She was a freaking writer. You're popping magazine, around with your friends. You know? You're like in your career. They're laying on a rooftop pool. I'm like, right. That's what, what I, that. I just don't think it is like that. Yeah. It definitely is not like that anymore unless you not, have an ungodly amount of money Tennessee, for and sure. you're like a little or unhinged. Pittsburgh. So I think all of those movies were written about unhinged, iconic people. Yeah, with money. And yeah, you just can't do that today. Just fucked up. You can't. You just can't. And we don't make the rules. Regardless, it's the holiday season. We're grateful for our lives. It is. Okay, Morgan, what, what are you most excited oh, for uh, Christmas and um, a New Year's? Like, what do you have any plans? Not really. Are you excited for anything? I actually think Christmas is one of the most stressful times. Really? I Good. love Christmas whenever the day comes, but like mm-hmm. leading up, you know me. When I see yeah. something planned out and it's a lot, Yeah. I... And like I'm fucking over it. But. Like okay, I have a fucking eight hour drive, mm-hmm. and then I have this two Christmas Eves, three Christmas days, and then I turn around and drive back the next morning. Yeah, like that's that, awful. I have no like time. I don't know. It's just stressful. It is. Well, never, it is very stressful. I for used you. to love Christmas, and mm-hmm. I hate that that like in me is gone. But like I just until I think I can establish like my own Christmas, yeah. like with my own family. Yeah, I think the magic will come back. I hope it comes back. It will. But like right now, I'm like, ugh, holiday. It's still very stressful because you're having to do a lot of things in preparation. Yeah. I know for parents, it's extremely stressful. It's kind of like going to Disney World. You're like, Jesus Christ, I've never spent so much money in my life. Never been fucking curb stomped by so many Disney, people in my entire life. Pause. Disney World needs an all-inclusive experience. They do. Like a resort. Because when you go to an all-inclusive resort, you're able to relax. You're not yeah. worrying about the dollar signs because you already fucking paid for it. You already paid it. for it. And so you just want to. And Disney needs that. They have. They need options for. They don't it, but even it's do like billion dollars. They don't do meal plans anymore. Do you know what? that? What? Yeah. Real thing. No. And um, also on that note, they're making a fuck. What was it? Right behind Toy Story, they're making a, a whole new land, and I don't remember what it was. No way. Yeah. No way. No, we're no way, and I don't even know what it is. It's right behind Toy Story, and also Universal is is getting their. <laughs> I'll be there. Nintendo World in California. It's coming to the United States. There's just there is a Mario Kart ride. Oh, you walk my God. around the we park need to go. and it's like Disney bands, but like you pick your character. So you have like a Yoshi band, a Peach band, and you you know boxes. You like punch. Up, Listen to me right and you now. Walk over and you punch it up. And it's like Yahoo. Listen to me right now. Mario. Listen to me right now. <laughs> if anybody has any connections, we want the VIP op- uh, grand opening invite. Fuck all the gamers. We'll bring our husbands. They I can be deserve the this. Okay. This this is something that is so in our DNA. We have to specifically Morgan's. I love Mario Kart, but I don't have the allegiance and I, I need to go religion of Mario Kart that Morgan experiences. I need to go. We have got to go. We need a CNC. If anybody works for Universal that is listening to this, get us that invite immediately, please. We will literally create the best content for you. Oh my god, I will literally do whatever. 
free cameos for life free cameos for life <laughs> they're like that's it okay merch whatever you want whatever, whatever you, want. you want any <laughs> platform you want it to be on it's all but I, yours oh my god i need to know what's going on in disney though in florida did you find it yet no i didn't okay so me and morgan were doing our what's new segment when i came across this article called the 17 most popular drink recipes of 2022 Ooh. and i thought that we absolutely had to go through this and it's written by epicurious Ooh. number one was busy izzy highball never wow okay. okay don't feel bad if you've never heard of the busy Thank you izzy for the it's a hundred year old whiskey cocktail that you rarely see at bars these days. Mix yourself a glass and read the history of this forgotten delight, one of our most popular drinks in 2022. Now I have to have it. Yeah. I don't even like whiskey and I have to have it. Number two, the classic dry martini. No, it's giving you walk 204. It vibes. is. It is. Mm, I love a dirty martini. No, guys, Taylor tried to make me this martini one time. No, guys, you have to listen to this. Yeah, this is great. It was fucking pickle juice she so she doesn't like olives and and i was, was like you can do it with a pickle juice i and it, it was like we had a shitty vodka also yeah it was a cheap cheap vodka and i about vomited it was in a plastic I can bottle taste that's it how in cheap right now yeah i can taste it um number three the ultimate paloma oh okay i love that if you don't know what a paloma is it makes morgan have horrific acid reflux <laughs> because of the grapefruit but it's grapefruit soda tequila and lime oh my god who is it that has the best palomas in knoxville the uh embassy suites rooftop mm. bar has the best palomas in knoxville swear to god morgan I feel like we were getting those in cabo oh we did what we number did. are we on number four, four. The Jungle Bird. Ooh. Love bittersweet Campari. 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 Tiki drink. Oh, yeah. Anything that has the aloe leaf in it or the uh, pineapple leaf in it, I'm here for. Yeah, it looks good. All right, go ahead with the next. The Clover Club. It's a oh. gin cocktail with fresh raspberry syrup. That actually looks good. That sounds great. All right, next it's is the Hot Toddy. Ooh, hot toddy. Um, the next one, we need to try the redheaded saint. Oh. It is a must try for anyone who loves mezcal and ginger. That sounds just like it's up our alley. Yeah, that looks so good. The next one is not a colada. That looks good. Number nine, classic milk tea. That's up your alley. I love I love boba tea, milk tea, exact same. Oh, then we have a rosy ranch water. Mm. It's a ranch water, probably with some vodka or gin, if I had to guess. And then it looks like it has like a tahine or like a spicy rim to it i think ranch water is with tequila right because it's in topo chico's you make a ranch oh water i don't know Chico? i was just thinking of like the actual ranch waters like the seltzers uh, i thought those were tequila are they vodka I don't think so hmm. i don't know I have no idea but it's made with spicy a spicy rim and that is a me i love a spicy drink i always get a spicy jalapeno mark. spicy skinny mark skinny mark my favorite Skinny yeah. mugs are better because they don't have so much sour. And they don't make you so sick by yeah. the time you're done drinking it. You can have 19 of those. <laughs> Not that you should. The next one is Whiskey Daisy. Mm, this variation good. on the whiskey sour is orangey and refreshing. Mm. Okay. And then there's an amethyst sour, <gasps> whiskey and rum, and amaro. Hmm. I don't know what amaro is, but it Probably sounds like a little amaretto. bit like amaretto. And amaretto is a nut-based one. Yeah. <laughs> figure that one out the hard way oh my god the next one is an appy spritz the best in the whole wide world you guys know i am an appy spritz bitch bitch and then we got a classic marg looks delish crowd pleasing cocktail mm, Ooh, jam session 
This low APV concoction gets its fizz and spice from ginger kombucha. I can never say that. Kombucha. 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 I love kombucha, though. And then we have a classic daiquiri. Mmm. A little simple. Wait, what is it? Looks a simple like it's thing It's got a beauty. little cucumber spiral hanging out of it. We're not a bit. I'm not a big cucumber drink. I, drinks. Love, I love cucumbers, cucumber but not drinks. in a cucumber drink. I love cucumber drinks. It gives off this, I don't know. 17 out of 17 of Mai Tai. Okay, we're missing... Espresso martinis. I'm offended. I need to call somebody. I'm offended, actually. I'm very much offended. I, okay, so my drink of this year, my drinks of this year, three, okay? Number one, Aperol Spritz. Okay. Has been for the last two to three years. Number two, red wine, of course. And then a, absolutely beyond doubt, number three, Espresso martinis, two years in a row. Okay. So what are yours? My number one is going to be, of course, Tito's and ginger ale. Of course. The classics. Of course. With a lime. With a lime. My number two would then be probably a spicy mark. A spicy mark. I've been actually really loving those this year. I love spicy marks. What were we drinking in Cabo? Spicy marks. Spicy marks. We had spicy marks. We had... Oh, God. What tequila was shots. Okay. Tequila um, shots. And number three for me is going to be an espresso martini. And it's not higher up on my list because it's a nighttime, like, mm-hmm. occasional drink. You can't drink them every day or they lose their magic. Right. It's like only at special occasions yeah. do you get one. And it's got to be the one with the foamy top. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10. Okay, Morgan, hit them with it. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get Creepy. Winter is here, you guys. And for me, that means struggling to find the right temperature when I sleep, especially with Aaron. I recently found a way to stay at the perfect temperature all night long using silver-infused bed sheets by Miracle Brand that were inspired by NASA. Like Morgan said, self-cooling properties for better quality sleep is what Miracle Brand has to offer to you. Using silver-infused fabrics originally developed by NASA, very on brand for us, Miracle Brand sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every single night babes and they're self-cleaning these sheets are infused with natural silver that prevent 99.9 percent of bacterial growth leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than any other sheet no more gross odors and did we mention that they are luxuriously comfortable and great quality miracle brand sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tags of other luxury brands and for our late shoppers miracle sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse your friends or family and who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets and since these come with three free towels you're basically getting two gifts in one so also they are better for your skin stop sleeping on bacteria clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems so you can look glowing for that annual family christmas photo period go to try miracle.com creeps and crimes to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season and we've got a special deal for our listeners save over 40 percent off and be sure to use our promo code creeps and crimes at checkout to save even more and get your three free towels along with us miracle is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you are not 100 satisfied you will get a full refund upgrade your sleep today with miracle brand go to try miracle.com slash creeps and crimes and use our code creeps and crimes to claim your free 
three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash creepsandcrimes to treat yourself, a friend, or a loved one this holiday season. Thank you to Miracle Brand for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? Okay, first and foremost, again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Today, we're going to take it way, way back to the celebration of the winter solstice, Ooh. the birth of Christmas, and we're going to be introducing the legendary burglar, a.k.a. Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, <laughs> Krampus, and so many more. So if your kiddos are around, save this one another day. For another day. Or skip ahead 25 minutes, 30 minutes or so. Whatever it is. And if they are still here, hi kiddos. Hope your elves are being mischievous this year. I hope they are. We love you, but let's get creepy another yep. time. This is adult only. 18 plus. This is adult only. <laughs> so let's jump right on into it. We all grew up knowing that Christmas was the annual holiday that celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ on December 25th every year. And it's celebrated as this religious cultural celebration among billions of people around the world. Popular customs on the sacred day included exchanging gifts, decorating Christmas trees, except for me this year, attending <laughs> church, sharing meals in love with family and friends, and of course, waiting for Santa Claus to arrive. Since 1870, Christmas has been considered a federal holiday in the United States, but Christmas was not always the Christmas that we have today. And honestly, it's kind of straight away from its roots, becoming more of this like financial burden for most families, or for me, the most stressful time of the year. And this is common for a lot of people around the world. Mm -hmm. But how did Christmas start? Hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus, the middle of winter has been this time of celebration around the world. Mm -hmm. Early Europeans celebrated light and birth in the darkest days of the winter. And in mid-December, many people rejoiced because it was the winter solstice, meaning the worst of winter was behind them, a.k.a. longer days and more hours of sunlight. Mm -hmm. The end of December, there was cause for more celebration as cattle were slaughtered, meaning they didn't have to waste grain on the farm animals and they had a supply of fresh meat to feed their families throughout the rest of the winter. So okay. they were rejoicing on that. And on top of that, most wine and beer that was made during the year were finally finished fermenting and ready to be guzzled down the throats. Oh my God. And immediately sign me and up. And you're like, I love winter solstice. And winter the solstice. The beer's ready. I'm the here. The cattles are slaughtered. The wine has been <laughs> sitting, babe. Pour it up and slice me some meat. Let's go. Let's fucking go. Steak and wine. <laughs> Steak and wine. And more grain for I'm me. I'm here. Are you joking? But the winter was celebrated differently in different parts of the world. In different parts of Europe, people honored the pagan god odin during this midwinter time and people were kind of terrified of odin as mm. they believed he would make these flights through the sky on his horse and throughout the night he did this to observe his people and depending on their actions he would decide who would prosper or who would perish oh. aka naughty or nice. Oh my god, I had no idea. Yeah, so because of his mythology, many people chose to stay inside, hoping that he would not choose them to literally perish, like die. <laughs> yeah. Like, please don't let me die. This I mean, year. Cole is a nicer way to put god it. God Odin. Yeah. Also, during this time, Romans were known to celebrate, excuse my pronunciation, Saturnalia, or the holiday in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture. Ooh. Saturnalia lasted a little over a month, starting at the week leading up to the winter solstice. During this time, any enslaved people, this is so cool, well, sometimes, <laughs> were given temporarily, temporary freedom, and the social order was treated as equal for every person. 
Wow. So we they should do like, that year round. So they were like, real, yeah, treat everyone equally year round, but also like, but that is, I bet that was extremely celebrated. Like that is a big yeah. deal. And I meant like in some cases, as in like if the enslaved person was a murderer, right. like that wouldn't probably be a good pick case. But right. like these are just people living in poverty that right. were enslaved at this time. They also celebrated juvenilia, which honored the children of Rome. Hmm. And for the wealthy, they would celebrate the birthday of Mithra who was the god of the unconquerable sun. Wow. And they celebrated this, her birthday, December 25th, every year. In the early years of Christianity, the birth of Jesus was actually not celebrated. In fact, Easter was the main holiday. Mm -hmm. The resurrection was top priority in Christian celebrations. In the 4th century, whatever year that was, couldn't tell you, when? the Christian church decided to institute the birth of Jesus as a holiday. But, fun fact, there is actually no real date in the Bible to pinpoint down on his exact birthday. So he stole the god of the sun? And there is even evidence that his birth most likely happened in the spring because shepherds were herding. And that is extremely uncommon to do so in the winter. Who? Crazy. <laughs> okay. Crazy. Good. Crazy, Crazy girl. Everybody hold on to your pants and your religion. <laughs> it was actually Pope Julius Julius the first that chose December twenty-fifth as Jesus' birthday. Okay, that's kind of rude. You literally stole that from another god. And it's believed that he did this in effort for people to kind of like adopt or like absorb the traditions of the just like they Saturnalia did. Festival. Yeah that were mainly celebrated in Rome. Right, just like they so did with... So they're like, with, people are um, already celebrating Mithra, the god of the god sun. God of the sun. And then Saturn. Right. Agri age of agriculture, and god of agriculture. And then plus like wine, beer. Wine and beer. And they're like, people are celebrating, so winter let's solstice. make this Jesus' birthday. Yeah, yeah winter solstice. But that's exactly what they did with Halloween. Yep. With All Souls Day, like we went through. Yeah. God, the church literally changed everything. Yeah, they did. They Isn't that mind-boggling? That's crazy. Um, they believe that by holding Christmas as the same time as the winter solstice festivals that were already taking place around the world for different reasons, that this would increase the chance that Christmas would be embraced worldwide, regardless of religion. <laughs> it's really bold because at the time, like Christianity was not worldwide. In fact, it was like a minority religion. I know. That's wild. On Christmas, believers attended church. Then they celebrated like pretty rambunctiously and like this drunken like carnival like atmosphere okay. that you would picture like mardi gras today mm. like that's what christmas was whenever the pope was like december 25th christmas turn it up and they're like mardi gras give me the beads where they at hey flashing bitches and they're walking by like this is church <laughs> each year a beggar or student would be crowned the lord of misrule and celebrants then played the part of like his subjects so they would give someone the poverty like your lord and then anyone celebrating would be like wow you know like working for him wow kind of cool okay if i was a beggar i'd really hope i'd be lord of misrule <laughs> me too um the poor would go to the houses of the rich and demand their like best food and drink <gasps> and if owners failed to comply like the rich their visitors would most likely like terrorize them with like mischief and like that's where we see like you know <laughs> like, elves that, no, <laughs> but like that's kind of interesting yeah okay wow that is um, really christmas interesting. then became the time of the year when the upper class could repay their real or imagined debt to society okay. by entertaining less fortunate citizens so like giving back yeah okay it wasn't until the early 17th century that the way christmas was celebrated changed in 1645 oliver cromwell took over england armed with puritan forces mm -hmm. and in doing so they vowed to 
cancel Christmas, a.k.a. Oliver Cromwell equals the Grinch. Yeah, the Grinch. This didn't last long as Charles II was restored back to the throne and with him came back Christmas. When English settlers came to America in 1620, they were even more orthodox in the Puritan beliefs than Cromwell was, oh which is God. really interesting. Yeah. Therefore, Christmas was not actually a holiday or celebrated at all. As a matter of fact, for about 20 years, in 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was not allowed in the city of Boston or the <laughs> town of Bo settlement of Boston. Right. And anyone caught rejoicing during this time could be arrested or most likely fined five oh shillings. Yeah. We no literally Christmas. canceled halloween cancel christmas anything that's fun cancel but elsewhere in new america the jamestown settlement captain john smith embraced christmas and it was celebrated by most mm. so the new america comes and it's kind of divided D again very much religion. divided religious right. divided yeah we know that after the american revolution english customs were dwindling including christmas and it wasn't until 1870 that it was declared a federal holiday wow and the man that brought Christmas back to America was this guy named Washington Irving. Around the 19th century, Americans kind of did like this like rebrand on Christmas. So they're cruising <laughs> crimes. <laughs> they're like a rebrand. We need a new logo. They reinvented it, changing it from this carnival holiday to a family-centered day of peace. And they did this because this time period was so full of death and conflict mm. and tragedy unemployment was high gangs were growing death was accumulating and there were even riots that were like popularized around the christmas season mm. it's like more and more people were acting out around christmas time well yeah you took all the fun out of it yeah in fact in 1828 the new york city council instituted the city's first police force in response to a christmas riot N not christmas being the cause for police forces yeah what an ironic moment yeah wow isn't that nuts that's insane no wonder crime rates are 10 times higher during the holiday seasons really though because mm. of the yeah it must be like people just feel some type of way. <laughs> it's just like it it's just in our dna i mean guys literally i haven't told them my mail got stolen oh my, my god christmas card yeah from my aunt and uncle i got it out of the mailbox and it was <laughs> fucking opened fingerprints and all ruined <laughs> okay and nothing was in it morgan calls me shows it to me i said did you really touch it? My with hands, hands all over it. She's like, we could. She's opening it, pulling it open. I was like, well, I we could have well, got a fingerprint. Okay, well, I had to make sure there was nothing in it before I overreacted, <laughs> and I was taking all of the dog work. So, did you ever file the police report? Uh, what do you think? Do you want me to do it? No. Someone went. That's a federal offense. They went through yeah. your mail. Yeah, that's serious. At least serious I have issue. a list of suspects. Yeah. <laughs> don't live that. Don't worry. <laughs> suspects being like my old. The old people that lived in the apartment. Yeah. <laughs> the only other people that have a key. <laughs> yeah. So because of this violence, certain people of the upper class wanted this change. They wanted to change the way that Christmas was being celebrated. Oh, the rich people wanted to change The rich people wanted peace. Peace. They're so good at keeping it. In 1819, <laughs> Washington Irving wrote the sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon. Hmm. Geoffrey. 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 Yeah, from yeah. Like Game of Thrones, Joffrey. I don't know Game of Thrones. And this was a series of stories about the celebration of Christmas in an English manor household. And in the stories, we saw the rich inviting the poor into their homes for the holiday, like it was the old days, like right. what I just explained the history was. And the two groups were just mingling with each other with no problems. There was peace. There was gratitude, freedom. happiness, freedom, joy. And this was inspiring to Americans, wanting that peace always. But if that's not possible, then at least one day of the year. Mm-hmm. Also around this time, Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. And the message of the Christmas Carol struck something in the people of the United States. 
charity, and kindness. Mm. And of course, while gifting was always rewarding, the upper class also saw this as a chance to just shower their children in gifts without them like coming off as you're spoiling your kids. Right, right. You know, so like, and it's like also like a flex of money. Yeah. When you're showering people with gifts. Because who can get the best gift? Right. Rather quickly, Americans began to embrace Christmas as this like perfect, peaceful, gifting family holiday, kicking out the old customs. In the next 100 years, Americans molded Christmas to be celebrated in a way that fit their cultural needs as a growing nation. In 1822, an Episcopal minister named Clement Clark Moore wrote a Christmas poem called An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas, or more popularly known today as Twas the Night Before Christmas. The poem was based on a man, Santa Claus, who was jolly and cheerful and giving and flew around home to home on a sled that was pulled by reindeer to deliver toys. The legend of Santa Claus can be traced back to a monk named St. Nicholas. Wow. He was born in Turkey around 280 AD. A monk? Yeah. St. Nicholas gave away all of his inherited wealth and traveled the countryside helping the poor and the sick, becoming known as this protector of children and the sailors. Oh my God. Okay, I have chills all over my body. He died on December 6th, and every year since, his death anniversary is celebrated by families that prepare feasts in memory to honor him. And we're, we're going to talk about December 6th a little I wanna bit I want to celebrate December 6th. Me too. And fun fact, it's also considered good fortune to get married on St. Nicholas's death date. You want to know something that's really insane? What? December 6th, I was looking at my computer time and date, and I was like, fuck, someone's birthday is today, and I've missed it. I don't know what it is. Today is important. Today is really important. Dude, no one's birthday was that day. I was like, is it someone's wedding? And and I just like innately had it in my soul, I guess. I'm just supposed to St. Nicholas, me and him, we're buddies. Yeah. St. Nicholas first entered American popular culture in the late 18th century in New York when the Dutch families gathered to honor the anniversary of the death of St. Nicholas, which is Dutch for St. Nicholas, or Sinterklaas for short. And then the name Santa Claus was like drawn from the right. Sinterklaas abbreviation. Right. In 1881, cartoonist Thomas Nash drew an image to recreate old St. Nick in a way that combines like the Twas the Night Before Christmas poem and the actual St. Nicholas. And from that, the iconic Santa Claus in that red and white suit with a white beard was born. Can I take a second really quickly? Yeah. Are you going to talk more about Twas the Night Before Christmas? No. Okay, so I want to give you this little blurb when I went down this one rabbit hole. And I'm not going to tell you exactly why, but I am going to tell you that on Twas the Night Before Christmas... You will, tw- you twas, will be getting a something. Oh, yeah. A twas family night before Christmas, you're going to get a little something for the kiddos that can't actually yes. listen. And we gave you guys something that's family friendly that you can watch or listen to. So we want to invite you to join us to do that. Either way, when I was doing some research during that time, I was reading about the history of Twas the Night Before Christmas. I was learning about the dude who wrote it. Can't think of his name. He was a minister. Is that what you said? A minister? Yeah, Episcopal. Okay, right. So get this. This is really interesting. When he wrote it, he didn't claim it. He like didn't claim it for like five to ten years. Something crazy. Yeah. And it was because he wanted to be seen as a scholar and writing like a fantasy, something like that, when he published it in the newspaper would have kind of looked bad on him so he didn't claim it it becomes all the craze so he comes forward and claims it and he talks about where the origins of it were and obviously it was based off of saint nicholas but he learned about saint nicholas from the dutch handyman that lived on his block in new york and he modeled the entire twas the night before christmas based off of the dutch handyman 
and St. Nicholas. So that's Stop. how he depicted St. Nicholas was based off of his how neighbor. his Dutch neighbor looked. Is that so sweet? Stop. I, I sobbed. And then we found out that, that neighbor it, is literally St. Nicholas. <laughs> literally. And he, they said that he was just so helpful and giving. And like he looked, he had the look of the Santa Claus that we know today, mm-hmm. like the uh, belly jiggling, like a bowl full of jelly. In addition to this, he, we, me and Morgan learned this, that the original Night Before Christmas was written instead of Donner and Blitzen. It was um, Donder, Donder and Blixt- Blixton. Yeah. Something like, like that. Donder and Which Blix- is Thunder and Lightning in Dutch. Yeah. We actually were at my neighbor Susie's house doing our photo shoot when we were talking about this. And she collects books. She has an insane, phenomenal library. We were going through all the Twas the Night Before Christmas books that she has. And you can see as... Blixen actually changed first and then there's so it says Donder and Blitzen then it changes to Donner Mm -hmm. and Blitzen but it happened like slowly over time it's a fun fact for you Oh, sorry to interrupt you. No, I just you're good. had to give that fun fact. I've been obsessed with it. I've told everybody about it. <laughs> Donder and Blixton. What is it? Yeah. Donder and Blixen? Blitzen. Blitzen. Was it now Blitzen? So it was Blitzen. Blitzen. So Blitzen. whatever Thunder and Lightning is in Dutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, alongside St. Nicholas was the devilish tormentor Krampus. Krampus is believed to have originated in Germany, and his name derives from the German word Krampen, which means claw. Krampus was thought to have been part of pagan rituals for the winter solstice. And according to the legend, he is the son of hell, the Norse god of the underworld. With the spread of Christianity, Krampus became associated with Christmas, despite efforts by the Catholic Church to actually try and ban the legend of Krampus. Uh, Of course. Um, In Germany, St. Nicholas and Krampus wouldn't visit on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, like for us the 24th and the 25th, like many actually believe. In fact... The Krampus, the creature, is Mm -hmm. said to arrive on the evening of December 5th, which is called Krampus Night or Krampusnacht. Whoa. I think I said that really well. Krampusnacht. Yeah, you did. I don't know. Anyway. We can call it And on December 6th, which would be St. Nicholas's Day, children would awaken to find their gifts or their injuries from Krampus Night healed if Krampus hurt them. That is really sweet. Yeah. Um, so while St. Nicholas rewards the nice children by leaving presents, Krampus is known to beat those who are naughty with branches and sticks. Oh, God. And in some cases, he is said to eat them or take them to hell. Oh, my God. Krampus is said to be this half goat, half demon monster. Yeah. Krampus comes from the folklore in Austria's mountain region. This oh. is interesting. Where he has always been like fucking up the kids and like amusing the adults for hundreds and hundreds of years. Krampus's day or Krampenschlag. Krampusnacht was basically a way to scare kids straight and they wholeheartedly believed in Krampus mostly due to the Krampus run on his day hell yeah the Krampus run is when grown men would dress as the Krampus creature get absolutely fucking obliterated (laughs) and run through the streets wow i'll be there and they're like 5k krampus run who's in who's in (laughs) who's up for it you know what i think i'm gonna i'm gonna teach my kids about krampus and this tradition continues to this day krampus became even more threatening and popular when the postcard industry boomed in germany and austria in the 1890s yes holiday cards were sent out to the houses but they weren't your joyous cheerful cards these were greetings from krampus cards i love where they showed krampus stuffing kids into a satch or preparing to beat a kid with one of his sticks or dragging them away in chains patreons be prepared that's what you're getting next year krampus cards you're getting krampus cards what the fuck i'm writing that in the calendar right now Krampus cards your krampus (laughs) krampus 
No, I'm Krampus, actually. I'm like Christmas. I know. <laughs> you actually are more of a Krampus this year. <laughs> For over a century, Krampus was not really popular in America. As a matter of fact, most people probably never even knew who Krampus was until 2004, when an art director and graphic designer named Monty Beauchamp mm. published a book of Krampus cards. Oh. Since then, Krampus has been around, mostly overlooked, but many know who he is. And he peaked in 2015 when the film Krampus came out. Although it's still relatively new in the United States, I'm almost positive that it's going to continue to become more popular in yes. order to scare kids into good behavior and let me tell you right now i will be i will, <laughs> I will also be a krampus mom i will play a role and so in implementing krampus into u.s culture all in all krampus is understood by children as the bad santa and i actually have a co-worker with me or that works with me who's german grew up in germany till he was 17 i said to him today i said so and so did you believe in krampus growing up well, fuck yeah <laughs> And I'm like, really? And he was like, fuck yeah, Krampus comes on the 5th. And if you're good, St. Nicholas comes on the 6th. Oh, my God. And okay. he was like, no, it was real. Like, it was like, like Krampus was real to all of us. No, I will literally toss out Santa. Yeah. Because I want Krampus. Yeah. Solely, I want Krampus. <laughs> Solely for the Grinch and Krampus. They're, I'm like, what do you I think expect? the Grinch is like their rendition of like Krampus. Yeah, absolutely. Like, They're like, it's not been Disney's. in the U.S. since all this time. No, it has. It's We've Grinch. just not actually shared the culture with it in the yeah the origins of it so i have a couple fun facts and then taylor i have a game i want to play I'm so excited. before my fun facts are each year 25 to 30 million real christmas trees are sold in the united states alone wow 30 million and there are about fifteen thousand christmas tree farms in the united states and trees usually grow for between four to 15 years before they're being sold oh my god the first eggnog made in the united states was consumed in captain john smith's 1607 jamestown settlement what? and so boston's up there like he christmas jail jail and john smith is like eggnog let's go <laughs> wants eggnog do you think we can make this alcoholic <laughs> <laughs> um poinsettia 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 plants are named after joel r poinsett an american minister to mexico who brought the red and green plant from mexico to america in 1828 oh my god the salvation army has been sending santa claus like donation collectors into the streets since the 1890s wow yeah that makes me even more inclined to donate yeah Rudolph, the most famous reindeer of all, was the product of Robert L. May's imagination in 1939. The copywriter wrote a poem about the reindeer to help lure customers into the Montgomery Ward department store. Wow. Reindeer, Rudolph was a way to get people to shop. Let me tell you something right now. The reason I do what I do and the reason I am who I am is because I have never loved courses more in my entire life than advertising, PR, and marketing classes. Mm -hmm. The shit that you learn, everything is a sales tactic. Rudolph. Rudolph is literally a sales tactic. And my last fun fact is that construction workers started the Rockefeller Center Christmas tradition in 1931. It was oh construction my God. workers. What? Oh my God. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so I have a fun I wonder game. if they knew that it was going to be what no. it is. No way. Like They're like, the, let's put a fucking tree in New York let's City. Let's around <laughs> and put a massive Christmas tree out here in Rockefeller Center. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, so I have a fun little game with you, and this is the Christmas quiz. Okay. If you get 10 out of 15 right, um, we can record our alcoholic review tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> game on, bitch. Game on. Okay, how many Rudolph's fellow reindeer's names start with D? Three. Three. Correct. Yeah. All right. Count on your fingers. <laughs> on, in the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, what was the gift given on the seventh day? Good God. I literally don't even. Seven sons of singing. Something singing? <laughs> what is it? I don't even know. Seven it's... swans of swimming. Seven. Okay. I knew I had some S. All right. We only got one. What okay. is the Grinch's dog called? 
What's his name? Oh, God, I know this one. Mo? Max. Max. Okay. How no, many Home Alone one. films are there? Three. Okay. I had two answers here. So there's actually six. Shut the fuck but up. But in the OG characters, there's only two. The third Home Alone has different characters. I've seen the third one with the different characters, the uh, brown-headed kid. So, okay. First I guess any answer Macaulay between Culkin. two and six is okay. We'll yeah, count it. We're going to count that um, What plant sometimes known as the Christmas flower? The poinsettia. Correct. In Mean Girls, which Christmas song do the plastics get up on stage to perform? <laughs> Jingle Bell Rock. Correct. <laughs> which Christmas carol includes these lines? The stars in the sky look down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Um, little Lord Jesus, major. Is it Away in a Major? Is that the name of it? Away in a Manger, yeah. yeah. Um, true or false? Ikea allegedly made the largest gingerbread man. Um, false. True. No. What vegetable allows Santa's reindeer to fly? Okay. Um, I always gave them carrots and celery. Carrots. Okay. We'll count it. <laughs> what should we leave out for Santa on Christmas Eve? Cookies and milk. Okay, bonus question. Okay. What do Swedish children leave for Santa Claus? Oh my God, I actually knew this one the other day because I saw it on a TikTok. It makes fucking sense and we'll make our kids leave it out for Santa Claus. Is it beer? Coffee. Coffee? Okay. It's it coffee? coffee, yeah. Okay, so I saw this girl. She was like, I always gave coffee and this guy stitched it and he was like, I always gave beer. Everybody was going about like what they gave. I was cackling because I would be like coffee. Absolutely. Because it's an all nighter. <laughs> Mine's red wine. Mine, <laughs> red wine. You have to leave red wine so Krampus doesn't come in here. <laughs> and then you have to give red wine again because um, St. Nicholas. The whole 12 days before Christmas is red wine. Yeah. Every single night. So you Starting keep Krampus December away. December 5th, Krampus <laughs> night. It's red wine We have to put out 19 Krampus crimes night. bottles. <laughs> okay. How many times does Santa check the list before making his deliveries? Oh my God. Really? Twice. Okay. And what's the highest grossing Christmas movie of all time? The highest grossing Christmas movie of all time. Uh, we talked about it actually on Love It, Hate It. And it was m mind blowing. It was, it's not Rudolph, is it? Is it Frosty the Snowman? No. No, it's something. Oh, it was Charlie Brown, right? No. Oh, that the was the most popular one. The Grinch who stole Christmas. We'll do a bonus question here. Who plays the Grinch? Jim Carrey. Yeah. An elf, what actor plays Buddy the Elf? Shut up. Will Ferrell. I know. I was kind of giving you some of these. Um, and two more. What magic item brings Frosty the Snowman to life? Is it his carrot nose? No. What is it? His old silk hat, according to the song. But Dude, in the I show, it is the nose, I'm pretty sure. I, okay. Um, okay. And before Christmas lights, people would put what on the trees? Before Christmas lights? Mm -hmm. Would they do like popcorn and oranges and like food and shit? For the lights, what would they do? It wasn't candles, was it? It was. What? It was a fucking health hat, safety hazard. Oh the, I thought fire, that was a good idea. Fire marshals of 1820 were like, that's enough. That's enough. All your houses are made out of only wood. <laughs> Quit that shit. It was fucking candles. Candles. Okay, was that like hanging lanterns? Like, is that why we do maybe ornaments? Like, that would make sense. But it like, probably was like they would put like <laughs> you're just putting live candles hanging there. Anyway, I don't know if you pass. I hope you didn't. So we don't. Have I didn't count them. It doesn't matter. It didn't ship yet. So oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even matter. Well, I really love that. Yeah, that's all I got. Maricors. I'm honestly like I have FOMO. I wish I was telling it with you. Because I wanted to do that so bad. <laughs> but instead, I'm going to give us a true crime case. <laughs> Today, I'm covering the Sauter family. Before I hop into it, I do want to give you a trigger warning for children involved in this case. It's not in a murder, gory type of way, but it is really sad. Anything that I do that covers children, I do want to make sure I give you a trigger warning for. So to start us off, I'm going to give us a little bit of family history. Giorgio Sadu 
was born in Tula, Sardinia, Italy, in 1896. At the age of 13, he and his older brother immigrated to the United States and made it through customs at Ellis Island. But right after being cleared from customs, it seems that his older brother went back to Italy immediately, Mm. which odd right yeah from that point forward Giorgio Sadu went by George Sauter he eventually began working on the railroads in Pennsylvania and his first job was to actually carry water and other supplies to the labor workers he then later began working as a driver in Smithers West Virginia and eventually started his own trucking company hauling fill dirt to construction sites and later they expanded to hauling coal that had been mined locally. In the early 1920s George met Ginny Cipriani in Smithers West Virginia. She was the daughter of a local storekeeper and their family had also immigrated from Italy when Jenny was about three years old. The two quickly fell in love and got married. After which they moved to a town over called Fayetteville. It was a small Appalachian town with a very large and involved Italian community. Once there, they moved into a two-story timber-framed home that was just north of the town. And in 1923, Jenny gave birth to the couple's firstborn child. But from 1923 to 1942, Jenny gave birth to 10 children. What? Yeah. So that means she was pregnant for 90 months. Divided by 12. Right. Don't know. (laughs) I can't do division. (laughs) Clearly. Seven and a half. Seven and a half years she was pregnant. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. And here are a list of their children's name and order. John, Joe, Marianne, or Mary Ann, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Irene, Betty, and Sylvia. While in Fayetteville building their family's business, George's business, It grew like and really did well. They became extremely successful and they were referred to as, quote, one of the most respected middle class families around, end quote, according to locals at the time. It was Christmas Eve, 1945, and the family had gone to sleep later that evening, just after 10 p.m. Because the younger kids wanted to play with the toys that their older sister, Marion, had gifted them. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang downstairs and this woke Ginny up. So she got out of bed and answered the phone call. It was a woman that she did not know, and this woman was asking to speak with someone that didn't live at the Sauter house and Jenny had never heard of before. Jenny could tell that the woman was like at a party or with a bunch of other people because there was a lot of like laughing in the background and glasses clinking together. Jenny told the woman that she must have called the wrong number, and the woman like laughed weirdly, and other people laughed along with the woman, and they hung up, and she said it was weird because she felt like they were like laughing at her the fuck right I'd be pissed well first off you just call my house at 12 30 in the morning at christmas yeah what okay no, like is there a problem call back right they have uh, <laughs> redial <laughs> but just 30 minutes later jenny would wake up again and this time it was to a very loud bang that came from the roof after the loud bang it sounded like something was rolling off of the roof so she sits up and she listens to see if there was any more sound because obviously this was only about a 30 minute window so she was probably just dozing Mm -hmm. and you know when a loud bang wakes you up you don't know if you were going into a dream or if you actually heard it i do this all the time me too and you know she probably sat up and was listening and was like okay whatever and so she finally lays back down and again she's dozing off about 30 minutes later when she starts smelling smoke so she jumps out of the bed and she finds that their house was on fire specifically george's office 
So she runs back and wakes up George. And George and Jenny manage to get their children out and get out of the house safely. But it was only four of their children when they got out there and looked at everybody. 22-year-old John, 16-year-old George Jr., 19-year-old Marion, and 3-year-old Sylvia. But 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty were nowhere to be seen. They all knew that every one of the nine children that were living in the house were in the house that night with 21 year old joe serving in the army in world war ii which we're going to come back to eventually in a panic knowing that five of their children were in a home as it was burning george broke through a window and like sliced his arm up bad he runs into the home that's burning it's a timber home again burning and he's searching for his children he knew that everyone on the first floor had gotten out because Marion had been asleep on the couch and Sylvia had been asleep in her crib beside Jenny and his bed but George Jr. and John had been upstairs in one of the two bedrooms that the children shared and all slept in and they had made it out but that meant that his other five children likely didn't hear their brother leaving or screaming for them like they were and were probably stuck upstairs Because by the time George had gotten to the staircase, it was completely engulfed in flames. Oh my God. So they were trapped. He ran out of the home with severe burns and injuries to his arm from the window and the fire. But he couldn't even feel his pain as he rushed to the side of the home where he always kept a ladder propped up against the house. His plan was to reach the children by breaking through the upstairs windows. But the ladder was missing. Thinking on his feet, he sprints to one of his two coal trucks that was parked outside of the home. And he has John, the oldest son, start trying to turn on the other one. But neither of them would start. Because his plan was to back it up against and, and jump up. as oh, okay. Yeah, to use the truck to climb up the truck and get into the window. But neither of these trucks were working. Despite the fact that literally when they had come home from work hours earlier, they were working Fine, the both of them. As George racked his brain for new ideas, Marion ran to their neighbor's home begging them to call the fire department. But they could not get any responses from the operators. Another neighbor at a nearby tavern had also called the fire department after seeing this massive blaze. Again, no operators responded. Marion ran back to the house as the neighbor jumped in their car and drove into town to go find the fire chief, F.J. Morris. George frantically searched for any water sources that he could. It had been raining all day and the barrels outside had been filled with rainwater, but it was frozen solid. Oh my God. Despite the fact that the fire department was literally only 2.5 miles away from the Sauter family home, the crew did not arrive until 8 a.m. What? Yeah. At which point, the home was, according to Smithsonian Magazine, a smoking pile of ashes. George, Jenny, and their surviving children mourned the presumed loss of Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty because there was no longer a fire to be put out and the fire department performed a brief search of the grounds, after which Chief F.J. Morris told George and Jenny that there were no signs of human remains. What? Right, but Moore suggested that the fire could have been so hot that it cremated their bodies. Later, a state police inspector arrived at the home and searched for the cause of the fire and determined that the fire was a result of faulty wiring. Mourning his children home and life before this tragic day, George filled the home's basement with 
five feet of dirt and ashes from the home because the home had collapsed into the basement. He did this in order to preserve the site as a memorial garden for his five children, and they planted beautiful flowers on top. Just before New Year's Eve, the coroner's office issued five death certificates to the Sauter's children, ruling their cause of death to be suffocation or fire. As the days went by, George and Jenny grew suspicious. They believed that their home had been deliberately sat on fire and that their children were not dead, but instead they had been kidnapped. To better understand this, we need to start from the beginning and backtrack a few months before the fire. In the fall, George had the home's wiring inspected by the power company. The inspection showed that the solder home wires were in safe working order. But one of the reasons that George just so happened to get these wires checked out was because a week or so earlier, a man who claimed to have just moved to the area showed up at the solder's front door asking for a job. George kind of felt bad for him and walked around the property with him just talking about his life and coming to the area and what type of work he's looking for and his experience but George didn't have a job for him and was not hiring at the time but as they were walking around they passed by the fuse box outside of the home and the man looked at it and said this is going to cause a fire someday Hmm. Also, around this same exact time, a life insurance salesman had stopped by the Sauter's home. George told the man that they were fine. They didn't need his life insurance. We're good. But being a classic salesman, the man continued to push and like became very adamant and annoying. The more pushy this man got, George became very stern about his refusal. And the man goes crazy. I'm not even joking. He began screaming at George and said, quote, this is literally the quote, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed you are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have made about Mussolini end quote and stormed off oh my god but why would someone target the Sodders? and what remarks is this dude talking about concerning Mussolini especially with them being referred to as one of the most respected well-respected families in the area like why would anybody target them to understand this we have to go way back into George Sodder's history like I said in the beginning George came to the U.S. at the age of 13 from Italy with his brother again right after getting cleared through customs in Ellis Island it seems that his brother just pretty much turned around and got back on the ship and went back home like George was just on his own 13 years old in a new country living on his own terrifying and it's important to note that George was a loud honest unashamed man and he held true to his beliefs and would tell really anyone what he thought unless it was about his childhood George, for some reason, would never speak about what happened that made him leave home or why he was left alone. One would almost think that he was leaving his heritage and culture behind by doing this and cutting ties the way that he did. Yet he surrounded himself with other Italian immigrants and was really involved in the Italian communities from the time that he arrived in the U.S. He married an Italian woman and was very vocal about his thoughts on the Italian politics at the time so much so that it almost alienated him with that let's circle back to the second oldest son joe like i said joe was 21 at the time of the fire and he was overseas serving in the army in world war ii well world war ii had ended on december 2nd 1945 so just weeks before the fire broke out but eight months prior in april 
communist partisans had killed the fascist dictator Mussolini. This left Italians extremely divided. And one of the things that George was extremely vocal about was his absolute disdain for Mussolini. This was a topic that caused a lot of heated debates within the Fayetteville Italian community between George and many others. So let's go back to that crazy salesman and the weird happenings that had gone on leading up to this. Well, just days before Christmas, the oldest solder boys were outside when they spotted a suspicious car parked on the side of the road that their house sat on which was actually Highway 21 at the time. This car sat there for a few days in a row, but only once did they get a good glimpse of the man that was sitting in it, and they recognized him from a few days prior. The oldest son had seen that same man watching the youngest solder children closely one day a few weeks prior as they walked home from school on Highway 21. Now, knowing all of this, let's walk through the days, hours, and events leading up to the fire from that night once again, but this time in more detail. But before before we do that, I do want to walk us through the Sauter family's names and ages as of 1945 again, just so we can all be on the same page because I know it can be a little bit confusing with the fact that I'm talking about 10 I'm people, actually, 12 people. You're telling it so well that I'm actually picturing everything. Oh, thank you so but maybe because I drive through Fayetteville 9,000 times maybe, going yeah. to Pennsylvania. But so, I'm also like, oh, I've been there. I've never, I've never there. seen the house once in my life, but I'm like, I've, I'm picturing Dude, it. when you get, when you drive through there, you should go see one of the landmarks that I'm about to talk about here in a I little bit. I will send the Addy. You well, have to. I have to convince Aaron first, but oh my god, no! That you'll want to go do this. So obviously, we have the parents, George and Jenny. George was fifty, and Jenny was forty-two. Then we have the oldest son, John, who was twenty-two. Joe was twenty-one; he was overseas. Marion or Marianne was nineteen. George Jr. was sixteen. Maurice was fourteen. Martha was twelve. Louis was nine. Jenny was eight. Betty was five, and Sylvia was three. So the five children that are unaccounted for are Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny and Betty the middle babies the middle babies so not the youngest but really like the five youngest minus Sylvia right the baby baby okay so now that we're on the same page we're gonna walk through the timeline starting with the months weeks and days leading up first thing we have is the man shows up to ask for work at the Sauter's home he makes a comment about the fuse box starting a fire then George gets a fuse box checked out because of the comment that the man made and the power company says everything's great everything's in great working condition and it's safe then the life insurance crazy man comes Comes up to the house, gets mad, threatens George, and he's either psychic, a witch, or he did it. Point blank period. Period. Then we have the man seen watching the youngest children walk home from school. And then we have the weird car with that same man outside every few days. So here are the events in grave detail of what happened on Christmas Eve. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a local dime store downtown. She came home from work and surprised the three youngest sisters, minus baby girl Sylvia, with gifts to open. The kids were so freaking excited about these gifts that they asked if they could stay up past their bedtime, 10 p.m., to play and Jenny, their mom, said, of course, but only until Maurice and Lewis go to bed. This was going to be a minute because they hadn't done their chores for the day, which was putting the cows in and feeding the chickens. George, John, and George Jr. had already been asleep at this point because they had spent the whole day working and they were exhausted after dinner. After telling this to the kids, Jenny took Sylvia upstairs with her and they went to bed, saying goodnight to Marion, who was laying on the couch, meaning that these are the kids that were still awake and accounted for as of 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve. At 12.30 a.m., Jenny 
wakes up to that phone ringing. She answers, wrong number, no one she knew. They're laughing at her being weird, hangs up, begins walking back up to bed. So this is where more detail comes in. As she's walking back to bed, she realizes that the lights are still on and the curtains were not drawn. Now, this is really odd to her because she knew that her children knew better than to go to sleep without doing this. She realized like maybe they had just fallen asleep or maybe Marion was like, y'all go upstairs. I'll turn them off before I go to sleep. But Marion had passed out on the couch. So being a great mom, she just goes and turns them off and closes all the curtains. But the only light that she left on was the Christmas lights that were around the tree. She goes back to bed after all of this. As Jenny is dozing off at approximately 1 a.m. at this point, she is jolted awake by the sound of an object hitting the roof and rolling off with a loud bang. Jenny listens, but there are no more noises. So she begins falling back asleep. And approximately another 30 minutes later, she wakes up to the smell of smoke. She follows the smell to George's office, which is fully engulfed in flames. Jenny wakes up George, grabs Sylvia, and runs out to wake up Marion, who's still asleep on the couch, and they get out of the house. George screams up the stairs for his children to wake up. George Jr. and John wake up and they are told to get their siblings. George Jr. and John open the bedroom door to the second bedroom, which is actually the stairwell to the attic, which is where all the younger kids would play and sleep, and yell up there to tell them to run out. George Jr. and John run out of the house following their father. They get outside of the house and they wait a second before they realize that the children that were in the attic were not running behind them and following them. So this is when George breaks down the window and runs back inside. He cannot get upstairs because... It's engulfed in flames. George runs to the side of the house. The ladder's missing. He goes to his trucks. They won't start. Marion runs to the neighbors to call for help. Calls won't go through. Another neighbor calls from the tavern. Again, no one's answering. That same neighbor drives into town to find the fire chief, F.J. Morris. Morris acts as a phone tree, but he can't get a hold of anybody. And the house collapses and completely burns down into the basement after 45 minutes. The fire department does not arrive until 8 a.m. So here are the main questions. Number one, who was the man that was parked outside of the house watching the family? Who was the life insurance man? Who called the solders that night? What was it that was rolling across the roof? Where the hell is the ladder? Why wouldn't the car start? Why did it take so long for the fire department to show up? How did the fuse box start the fire? Is it possible that the children really were able to be cremated? And lastly, do we even know for sure that the children were in the home that night? A lot of these questions remain unanswered, such as who called the solders that night or who was watching them, exactly why the trucks wouldn't start in the location of the missing ladder. But we do know a few things for sure. Let's start with the alleged source of the fire, the fuse box because of faulty wiring. If faulty wiring had been the cause of the fire, there would have been no power to the house. But according to Jenny, all the lights were on just 30 minutes to an hour before the fire started and she had left the Christmas lights on and they watched as the Christmas lights were still on as the the fire fire was burning. Right. And it wasn't only the family that witnessed this. It was like any witness that had come by all of the neighbors. They were like, no, the Christmas light, because it was something we were talking. They were like talking about like, oh, my God, that's so sad because it's Christmas and we're watching your tree burn down, obviously. Cross that through the list. No go. So as for the fire department not showing up until 8 a.m., they claimed that it was due to the fact that many of their men had been drafted in the war. And those still in the area were volunteer firefighters and were asleep at the time, not hearing their phones ringing when Chief F.J. Morris called. 
Another interesting question that somewhat has an answer, I guess, is what it was that Jenny heard landing and rolling across the roof that night just before the fire started. So the day that the Sodders planted the memorial garden for their children, three-year-old Sylvia was playing in the yard when she came across a hard rubber object. Getting a closer look at it, this was nothing that belonged to the Sodders. It was nothing that they had ever seen before. Jenny was convinced that this is what she must have heard rolling across the roof that night. So she takes it to George, who realizes that it's a napalm pineapple bomb. And this was being currently used in World War II at the time, and it is best known for its usage by U.S. troops in the Vietnam War. A pineapple bomb was a fragmentation bomblet used against personnel and unarmored targets. After being dropped from the air, it would stabilize itself, hone in on the target, by using six pop-out drag veins, which is what makes it look like a pineapple. These would detonate upon impact, in which they would disperse 250 high-velocity steel pellets, aka someone probably 100% deliberately sat the Sodder's house on fire and likely loaded instead of pellets with something that could start a fire. Yeah. Now, the final question, were the five missing Sodder children even in the house that night? Like I said earlier, they were unable to locate any remains of the children, which is what made them assume that they had been cremated by the fire. All of them. But this did not sit right with Jenny. She felt it in her soul that her children had not been burned in the fire, which led her to begin her own experiments. She took various animal bones and burned them in fires, but no matter how long or how hot it was, there were always remains, just at least some and full something right and enough that you would notice it especially with that many children exactly something's gotta be five 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 human bodies jenny took this research that she had done and spoke with a crematorium worker in the area this is where she learned that even after human bodies had been burned at two hundred thousand degrees fahrenheit for two hours they always left some remains behind so the next question is could the house fire have been hot enough to turn human bones into ash not in 45 minutes simple answer is no especially considering the fact that the home only burned for 45 minutes and i know that i keep saying that the house burnt to ashes which is true as it was a wood home but many of the appliance pieces and remains of them were found in the rubble like burnt but intact enough that you could tell that it's an appliance right not to mention the fact that there were no smells of burning flesh during or after the fire and that's distinguishable right and it would have been rare if not impossible for this smell to be masked yeah therefore there is an extremely high possibility that the children were not even in the house at the time of the fire so the real question is did they leave on their own or were they kidnapped Well, in the hours, days, and weeks, and years after the fire, there were many sightings of the five missing Sodder children. And most of them point toward the theory that they had been kidnapped. On the night of the fire, in the early morning hours of December 25th, 1945, a woman was outside watching the fire. So this is literally as it's happening. She claims to have seen the missing Sodder children 
looking at her from the back of a car that was speeding off in the area. Hours later, I'm sick. In like on Christmas morning, but like when the sun's up, 50 miles west of Fayetteville, a woman working at a rest stop claimed that she had served the five missing solder children breakfast and that they had left in a car that had Florida license plates. Another report came in from Charleston, West Virginia, aka the place that shredded my passport. <laughs> and, and this came in about about a sighting from a, around a week after the fire. She claimed, this woman claimed to have seen four of the five children with two women and two men that looked to be Italian checking mm-hmm. into a hotel. The ladies on the phone. I just got chills. Oh I my know. God, oh my God, oh my God. She tried to talk to the children just to be kind and like make small talk. But one of the men that was with them became very hostile with her and would not allow the children to speak back with her or her speak to the children. And they left really, really early the next morning. However, she could not remember the exact date that she saw the children. In 1946, George was reading a newspaper that featured a photo of New York City school children. And one of the girls in this photo looked exactly like his daughter, Betty. So much so that he jumped in his car and drove to New York City. He was able to track down the girl and her family, but the family and the parents refused to speak with George. Whoa. Yeah. At which point, George began writing letters to the FBI requesting that they took his children's case. The FBI reached out to the Sauters in 1947, two years after the fire, and agreed to take the case for them. But when they requested the case files from both Fayetteville Police and Fire Department, they were denied access to the files and their help was refused. Why? So instead, George and Jenny hired a private detective named C.C. Tinsley. And pretty quickly, he uncovered a bombshell. He was reviewing the coroner's inquest that determined that the fire had been started as a result of faulty wiring when he found the list of jurors and he recognized one of the names well many of the names but specifically one it was the life insurance salesman that had threatened george just weeks before he was a juror he was one of the people on the inquest jury oh my god yeah Next, C.C. Tinsley began interviewing locals in Fayetteville, you know, just to see what the rumor mill has to say about this thing. And he's interviewing the town's minister when he gets the hottest goss about the fire chief, F.J. Morris. Apparently, Chief Morris told some people in the town and actually confessed this to his minister that he had actually come across human remains while going through the ashes of the Sauter's home, specifically a human heart. But instead of turning it in as evidence, he put it in a biscuit or dynamite tin box and buried it in the Sauter's Memorial Garden. Naturally, C.C. Tinsley heads over to Chief Morse's house and basically convinces him to tell him the truth and take him to where he buried this human heart. And he actually agrees. So they dig up this tin box, open it, and there's literally an organ in there. Oh, my God. So they send it off for testing. Turns out it's not a heart. In fact, it's fresh beef liver. What the fuck? That's like guilt. Right. And when he asked why he, when he was asked like why he did this, he said it was to give the family some sort of closure if they found ever found it. But I'm like, wouldn't they be more confused about the fact that it's in a box and it's fresh? Yeah. You know, like what the fuck? No burn at all. Right. So in August of 1949, the Sauters hired Washington, D.C. pathologist Oscar B. Hunter. 
Hunter excavated the dirt and the ash from the memorial garden, which was in the basement of the home, in which he discovered four pieces of human vertebrae. These remains were sent to the Smithsonian for analysis, who determined that the bones actually belonged to a 16 or 17-year-old person. Yet, the missing solder children's ages only ranged from 4 to 14 years old, meaning that it likely did not belong to any of the solder children and was probably just from the ground. Also, supporting this was the fact that no evidence indicated that the bones had ever been exposed to fire or smoke. The bones were then sent back to the solders, but to this day, we have no idea where they are. What? Yeah. And apparently, it was in George Sauter's possession, but I find that, like, why? Yeah. I feel like they would have kept really great tra- track of that. Yeah, I mean, You know what I mean? Um, obviously, this sucks because now we have DNA testing, which obviously we didn't have in 1949. We that because it could have easily been mistaken for a 16-year-old for the 14-year-old. Right, and we could test it. We could DNA test it now. Either way, after making these discoveries, the Smithsonian reported their findings to the public, upon which the West Virginia governor at the time, Oki L. Patterson, called a hearing in the Capitol building that was located in Charleston, West Virginia. I hate that place. And at the at this hearing, he officially declared that the case into the missing five solder children was closed, telling George and Jenny that their witch hunt was hopeless. Wow. But the Sodders refused to back down or be silenced because clearly something sketchy was going on in the whole town right in the entire town so they printed off thousands of flyers of the children and offered a five thousand dollar reward for any information that would lead them to their children or just the truth about what happened that night and pretty quickly they doubled that reward to a total of ten thousand dollars this is in 19 40s that's a ton of money in 1952 they put up a billboard on route 16 and one on route 60 with a photo of each of the missing children and it's still there today it's a landmark it had a detailed summary of the case and this is what it said in the 40 years that they both stood it is titled after 30 years it is not too late to investigate then there are photos of each of the missing children below which is the case summary and it calls out and questions everyone quote christmas eve 1945 our home was set afire and five of our children kidnapped the officials blamed defective wiring although lights were still burning after the fire started the official report stated that the children died in the fire however no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire what was the motive of the law officers involved what did they have to gain by making us suffer all of these years of injustice why did they lie and force us to accept those lies damn george followed up on every single lead that was generated and sent in and he would do all of these in person he would travel to whoever wherever to find the truth and one of these tips came in from a woman in st louis missouri she claimed that martha was being held in a st louis convent george went to every single convent in st louis but never found martha then he received a lead from a regular at a bar in texas who claimed that two people that he had never seen before came in and were drinking at the bar and they were talking about kidnapping in like very much detail like incriminating detail kidnapping and setting a house on fire in west virginia on christmas eve 
What? So once again, George follows up on this lead, but it was a dead end. They couldn't find the people that were in the bar. They were probably just driving through. In 1967, George received a tip from Houston, Texas, after a woman had written a letter to the family. She said that one night, her and her really good friend had been having drinks at a bar, and they got a little too drunk. And her friend then asked her if he could tell her the truth about his life that he had never told before. Obviously, she is like, uh, yeah, spill the tea. When he told her that his true identity is Louis Sauter and that he and his brother Maurice were living in Texas together, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxson, who is now Sylvia's husband, drove to Houston, but the lady could not meet with them in person. So instead, they went to police with everything that she had given them. And they were able to track down the two men that she had written George about. The two men denied being George's missing sons to his face. Grover later said that George believed that they were his sons and he was crushed that they denied the truth to his face. Later in 1968, so like within a year of this happening though, Jenny receives a letter that was only addressed to her in the mail. There was no return address, but it was postmarked Central City, Kentucky. Inside of this letter was a photo of a young man that looked to be in his mid-20s. And he looked just like their son, Lewis. On the back, and this is going to be on our Instagram for you guys to see. On the back of this photo was a handwritten note that read, quote, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, I lil boys, A90132 or 35. End quote. None of which makes sense because there were no Sauter children named Frankie, but I'm going to come back to this. The Sauters truly believed and knew that this was a photo of Lewis, so much so that they actually added the photo and the information in the letter to that billboard. Wow. And they, for a long time, kind of hid the information. Specifically, they didn't put Central City, Kentucky, because they were afraid that it would scare Lewis off from coming to them or that he would be harmed for doing it. So they hired a PI to go investigate this lead in Kentucky. And this was like a very well-known PI and very good at his job. So the PI goes with the like information that he needs. They wouldn't give him the original copies. They printed them. And he literally was never seen or heard from again. What? A fucking private investigator. Like a well-known... Never seen. Never. A private investigator. A detective goes missing. Wild. So let's discuss theories surrounding this entire case. We're going to do some debunking. We're going to do some recent discoveries. We're going to do theories. So first we're going to talk about the theories surrounding the kidnapping. Theory number one is the mafia. Yeah, that's so, my my head's been there the whole time. Yeah. So let's refer back to that handwritten letter on the back of the photo. A90132 or 35. 90135 is the postal code for Palermo, Sicily. What? And because of this, some people believe that the kids or at least Lewis had been taken to Italy by the mafia. But why? Maybe George had pissed off someone within the Sicilian mafia. Despite the fact that George never spoke publicly, at least, about his life in Italy or why he left, to the Sodders or really anyone, this theory seems extremely far-fetched. I mean, he was 13 years old when he left. Yeah, but I'm thinking more of like brother Sodder, uncle Sodder. Right. Went back to Italy, got in some bad business, had no other family but the ones in West Virginia, and they said, all right. Maybe, but really, like... (sighs) 
that's just not how the mafia would target somebody. If the mafia is coming after you, you know it's them. Yeah. You know, so they wouldn't hide behind this like mystery of, you know, it's unsolved. No, they'd be like, it was a mafia. We did it. Yeah. Is this a Sicilian mafia? What do you want? Theory number two is that it was someone in the community, if not the mafia. This one makes a little bit more sense because someone would have targeted George for something that he did or said about Italian politics, which is what kind of alienated him, especially around this time with the death of Mussolini. But in reality, that even sounds far-fetched to the Sodders, researchers, and many other people. If anything, I would put this more on like a bad business deal than like mm-hmm. a or like a personal vendetta based off of something else like I just that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me like you can alienate someone for sure but you're not gonna go and like and then you're not gonna also unless you hired someone you can't disappear with five kids if it was an inner town person without right. noticing that you were gone out of the town right like following the events there's just I just think it's more complex than someone in the community but me I too. don't think it's as serious as the mafia mm-hmm. because the mafia would let you know could be a little bit of both, though. It could be a little bit of both. So let's say that this is the case. Someone from the community. Why kidnap and hide the children for this long? What do you gain from that? You're not getting any money because you're not doing ransom. Right, and they seem to be all over. Right, and it seems like they're still doing okay in business. So what would be your motive to burn this man's house down and take five of his children away from him. With all this being said, it is still a possibility. So let's discuss some possible suspects. Now, before I go into this, I have various sources. Now, I'm talking about reputable sources. Like, you can't even come after me saying that I did Wikipedia on this. Like, this is such a well-known case that there is great research that has been done. And my two main, three main sources, History, Smithsonian, and NPR. So NPR, fight me. fight me. You can't even come at that. And remember when we didn't know what NPR stood for? We thought it was the public park, national parks radio. National parks radio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're done. I'll never forget that day. That was hilarious. Um, okay. With that being said, like, I have a bunch of sources about who and what I'm about to list off to you, specifically concerning the crazy insurance man and the other suspect because very rarely are either of them named in podcasts, articles, etc. And I'm not sure why they're not, but I I'm going to name them. And if there's something I don't know and I should know, please let a bitch know because I at risk. Yeah, like I, I don't know, I was just like, you know, I've listened to this case a million times and I don't and think it's just the salesman. Right. Like that's Insurance what we call man. them. So suspect number one, the crazy insurance man, or Rosser Long. Armstead Rosser Long Jr. was born in October of 1907. Many sources refer to him as Russell Long as this was him attempting to change his name in interviews and stuff to conceal his Mm. identity. He was the president of Rosser Long Insurance Incorporated, and he was a member of the Fayetteville Rotary Club which will be important to know. On January 14th, 1951, there are reports that he and three others presented a proposal to the Fayette County Board of Education asking them to accept a, quote, voluntary assessment of $1,330 to be applied towards Fayetteville's firefighting equipment, Um, saying that it was outdated. And 
there's a bunch of other things that I can only find one source for that I'm going to encourage you to look up on your own time just because I feel like I'm crossing a boundary. What's this dude's obsession with fire? He's obsessed with fire. He's got like fire markings in his home. Yeah. That he collects. That's weird. And he ran in a lot of circles with the Janatolo cousins, which leads me to suspect number two, Fiorenzo Janatolo. Fiorenzo was born in, oh God, Pedia Cavallo. Low. Italy in born September. Born in Italy. He's born in Italy in 1889. P-Town. Yeah, P-Town, Italy. <laughs> Pull up, P-Town, represent. Let's go. Uh, and he was very successful and well-respected in the Fayetteville area. He was known for being extremely outgoing and helpful to his community, which is why there is literally a memorial park in his name Ooh, in the town. Big money, running everything, fire departments. Mm-hmm. He was the director of the Fayette County National Bank, which was passed down to him by his father. And there he had co-signed a loan for George Sauter. But even more interesting than that, he was listed as one of the recipients of a $1,500 insurance policy in a mortgage clause on the Sauter's property. George met Fiorenzo before starting his coal trucking business when he worked for the hauling company that he owned. It was called Janitolo Construction Company. And to deepen this connection between the two, his cousin and business partner, oh God, Clinty, Clinet, it's, it looks like clean, T-E, C. Janitolo, was on the coroner's jury for the Sauter children's Stop cause death cause of fire what yes in addition to all of this many locals claimed that it had not been ross or long that had threatened george sauter that was changed and he took that responsibility but instead it was f janitolo the janitolos run the town but sure. why why would he be threatening and screaming at george he's his buddy obviously he like co-signs on a loan for him right apparently there was something that was in a clause for jenny's father's estate that the janitolos were supposed to be getting and it needed to be settled and George was kind of dragging his feet after Jenny's father died. And guess where Janitolo served as a board member? Fayetteville Rotary Club. And his cousin was also a member. Shit. Lastly, let's discuss the possibility that the children perished in the fire. And all of this really surrounds Fire Chief F.J. Morris. On Christmas Day, after the fire department had arrived, after the house had completely burnt down at 8 a.m., the investigation was conducted, and it only lasted two hours. It ended at 10 a.m., at which point Morris told the Sauter family that there were no traces of children's remains, suggesting that they had been cremated in the fire. Now, this was something that the Sauters could not believe for three main reasons. Number one, there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. Number two, they never heard or saw their children in the fire. As in, if the house is on fire, why wouldn't the children screaming, trying to get out, trying to escape? Simply put, George and Jenny knew that their children would try to escape and would try to communicate with them. Number three, there were no remains found at the scene. And they felt that it was highly unlikely that the bodies could have been cremated within the 45 minutes that the fire was burning. I agree. So we're going to try, I don't want to say try, but we're going to, I'm going to explain to you why people have debunked these one at a time. Number one, no smell of burning flesh. 
according to a blog post that was actually made by the author of a massive and amazing article on this case, Stacy Long with NPR from December of 2005. And again, I'm going to have all of this linked in the bottom. After interviewing a number of fire professionals, specifically a man named Sterling Lewis and witnesses to the fire, the wind that night was extremely forceful. And the wind was blowing in the opposite direction of where the family and witnesses stood while the fire was burning. Therefore, they likely would not have smelled it either way because it continued to blow like that into the next day. Number two, no one heard or saw the children trying to escape. We know that at the time of the fire, the five missing children were in the attic. And what do we know about smoke? It rises, rises, especially in homes that were built like the solders. They had chimneys that were connected to every single floor. According to Sterling Lewis in Stacy's reporting, this also aids in the fire's ability to jump in open airways, moving around homes, meaning that the children were likely unconscious in their bed due to uh, smoke inhalation before the fire even reached them, and they were unable to get out. Number three, the fact that there were no remains found. Many people combat this stating that there should have been organs or bones or something left behind at the very least in a fire that burnt down a home so quickly. And when the home collapsed, we know that it fell into the basement. Though the flames were no longer raging, the fire continued to burn well into the next morning. This is from the reports of the investigation when the fire department finally arrived on the scene. It was still smoking. The home continued to burn, not going out until really well into that two-hour investigation that they did. Therefore, there is no telling how hot the area was because it basically became a bonfire of some Mm -hmm. sort with it being in that contained underground basement where it all fell into. Meaning it is possible that the children were cremated, which is why no bones were discovered. But what if I told you there were remains discovered? at the scene the morning that they finally arrived well why didn't you tell me that 30 minutes ago well the solder family was never told about it oh shit according to fire chief fj morris and four other volunteer firefighters that were on the scene that day remains were discovered there were very little it consisted of internal organs and possibly a few bones or human remains is really the only way that they put it allegedly one of the witnesses that saw these remains was Jenny's brother who was a volunteer firefighter. According to Stacy's reporting and research, F.J. Morris was the one who was told to take care of the remains and it is believed that he may have disposed of them instead of informing the family and whatever to try and give them peace of mind that they didn't have to see what they saw, which is what the purpose of him putting that beef liver in the box was, is what he says later. He admitted that he had placed the box over there after the fact to try and give the solder some sort of closure because he felt bad. And those who witnessed his handlings of the remains believe that he did this out of pure guilt for disposing of the real remains to try and protect them at the time, which opened up a a different can of worms and lying to everybody at the scene. In addition to all of this, it is also claimed that F.J. Morris, who also served on the jury for the cause of the fire. Uh, um, Back up. Mm -hmm. Small ass town. He was the one who first proposed that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. Why, though? Well, because under his lead, 
they botched the entire investigation because they were in a rush from the scene to celebrate Christmas, even after they were already eight hours late. Holy And it makes no sense at all that the Janitolos were never interviewed no. Despite the fact that he, they run the town, the Janitolos were the only real people that had real motive and financial gain if the family lost their home. But that doesn't make sense as to why the children would be taken. It does make me lean towards the fact that maybe the children were in the fire. See, I'm leaning, if I'm pointed straight to the Janitolo twins because there's two of them. They right. two both of them have cousins, motive. not twins, but basically, oh, yeah, cousins both mm-hmm. have motives. And we can't forget about the first phone call. With the right. two girls. Two girls. Laughing. Laughing. And I feel like it's a promise like, you want kids? Like, you know, this family, we're about to burn the house down. They have so many kids. They, I they'll think, just die in the fire. And the two girls ran off with the kids. I think that. And I think it was the four of them that were in Charleston. That's probably what? Only an hour and a half, two hours away. Right. And then they came back to Fayetteville. They're in the jury. They're so involved. They're grieving with the family. And the girls ran off with the kids. Or, or, it, say the kids died in the fire the Janitolos didn't mean for that to happen. They just wanted them to lose their home so they would get financial gain off of it. And when they realized that the kids died in the fire, during that eight hours of nobody being there, they went to the scene, got the remains out and disposed of them. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't, if they did happen to get caught, because they literally made it very clear that they did it, they wouldn't be charged with murder. Yeah. George Sauter passed away in 1969 at the age of 73 in Charleston, West Virginia. From then on, Jenny and her surviving children, except for John, who refused to speak about the night of the fire, continued to search for the answers of the missing children. John wouldn't talk about this ever because he lied to his dad that night and said that he went and shook the kids, but he didn't. He just screamed up the stairs so he feels fault yeah he feels i mean survivor's guilt yeah that's sad really really sad um for the rest of jenny's life she wore black in mourning for her children and her husband every day she would visit her children's memorial until her death in 1989 at the age of 85 after which her children took over the search for their siblings and the final solder child passed away in 2021 and it was sylvia since then her children her nieces and nephew and nephews and her grandchildren have continued the search 23 me baby right so i have a bit of a theory and this is assuming that the children were never in the house could the children have accidentally caused the fire and ran away from home out of fear that their parents would punish them because when you're young like that and you're able to stay up past your bedtime your big sister falls asleep on the couch so you're just playing around you're oldest brother told you about a cool pineapple bomb from world war ii that you tried to recreate right and you accidentally start a fire and you run away and that's why if those two boys that were in texas really were maurice and lewis they didn't tell their dad the truth because it was already the damage was done yeah i also i feel like the children were not now but or maybe but were still alive because of you have to think this is in the what 40s the 50s whenever they were older in the 60s right you're not running around texas being like i'm this family from west virginia you know what i mean right it's very uncommon and then you're you're going out of your way you're living your life in your Mm -hmm. mid-20s late 20s and you're going around the bar and being like look like i have a really traumatic past this this and this i have from this fire like you just don't do that you're across the country West Virginia to Texas is so far. And then you have to think about the one in Kentucky. Like you're going to spend time out of your day 
to mail your mother Mm -hmm. a letter or a random woman a letter just with a picture for what for what purpose what do you gain from that maybe he just like wanted them to know that he was alive i i truly do wonder if i'm sure the solders left behind their dna to be ran in these databases for any connections for sure so especially sylvia if they are alive or were alive it's probably likely that one day they'll just be a random match like someone someone's mm-hmm. kid will take a 23 and kid and it'll be their aunt and- right anyways i that is the case that i have um and i'm going to also link you guys some reddit threads and the main articles that i used on this plus the blog post if you want any more of my sources i can give them to you but these are just the main ones that i used there's this one reddit thread that i'm gonna post for you guys and it is decoding the message on the back of that handwritten letter mm. it's really interesting i think it's a bit far-fetched but i can't wait to read theories i'll tonight, let you guys i'm kind of stuck there's really not a place to find the consecutive thoughts of the theories mm. which i find mind-blowing this yeah. is something that i've always i've always known about this case and i've always heard about this case it just could have been as simple as if the children were actually in the house don't dispose of the remains period and then if they then don't in the put house, that person in the drawer on the drawer. exactly the per- people That's that were threatening the cor- them i think all in all the issue with this case is the corruption in fayetteville yeah the corruption back then 100 percent. and then it's just like there's just so many different things that it could have gone into place and i just find it so odd that the fbi was not allowed to come in and take the case yeah that's weird that's weird i wonder if the fbi ever got another shot at doing it i didn't find anything in my I'm research sure. about it but I want to look it up i'm sure i'm sure that's an immediate red flag and they're like okay we're gonna look into it anyway so nice try right and like why wouldn't you just hand it over to the fbi then it's out of your hands and i don't know how it's their jurisdiction to be like sorry because basically they can say like we it's our investigation we don't want to give it to you because basically they botched it so of course they don't want to get it over i don't understand how a fire department can say no to the fucking fbi i don't know that doesn't make sense to me i don't don't know know why either it happens a lot it happens a lot still now i don't know how that's that shouldn't be legal no, if the FBI wants to come in, they should be able to come in. Now, obviously, if it's like a massive crime that they already have, like whatever, they can take over. Yeah, but especially like okay, maybe not the police reports if you want to keep police jurisdiction, but like the fire reports, I absolutely think that should be handed over federally if they request it. Well, also in 1949, so the FBI agreed in 1947. In 1949, they excavated the entire thing with the dude, the pathologist from Washington D.C. He sends everything that he finds to the Smithsonian. So the FBI, swoop in then. Just yeah. start your investigation over again from scratch. He had basically preserved everything from the remains of the home. And that's another thing that people really get pissy about is the fact that George Sauter, um did this, that he put stuff over it. But it was because it was getting contaminated because they weren't blocking it off. They were just like, oh, it's done. And they were like, wait till we can get the state police to come in. And he was like, okay, when are the state police going to come in? Right. And it's Christmas. Right. And so he just bulldozes it over and they're like, you you contaminated the scene. How? It's literally sitting in the same exact spot. The difference is it's now underground so we can dig it back up if we need to mm-hmm. versus it sitting on top in freezing snow, rain, ice, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just, I find, this is just such a crazy case. Yeah, it really is. And obviously, corruption, powerful people are involved. Yeah. No matter if the children were in the house or if they were not in the house. Point blank period. It all happened. There's corruption and someone was involved. 
Anyways, that's, that's my case. Crazy. Crazy. Happy holidays. No movies on it? There actually is a movie on it. Hmm. Yeah. I'll watch it. And there's documentaries too. Happy I watched holidays. the Merry Christmas. Uh, guys, don't forget that Love It, Hate It comes out on the last Friday of the month. And this Love It, Hate It is going to be something about an onion for um, me. The mystery murder. Um, who killed Santa Claus? Who killed Santa Claus is you, right? Yeah. And mm. yours is Glass Onion, Knives Out Mystery. Knives Out Mystery. Yep. That's it. Yep. So don't forget to watch those. Um, they're actually really good. So. Yeah. Morgan and just there's came a Knives Out. out um, or one. I'm sorry, a Glass Onion movie one. Or Knives yeah. Out one. No, it's Glass Onion. Yeah. Knives Out, a Knives Out mystery, Glass I Onion. I don't, I don't know. I don't know which one's the real name. Right. I know there's, there's a, a one. there's a one before it, and I think they you don't have to watch it, but you should. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy Hanukkah. Don't forget that we have a little Twas the Night coming out for you guys on so Christmas Eve. Pack your kids up and. It's sit, family friendly. Sit underneath the television and put on YouTube and drink your hot cocoa and send us pictures. Mm, yeah, send us pictures. Tag us. Please. Oh my God. Okay, we love you guys so much. Love you, bye.